Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, as we approach this text this morning, I pray that we would be changed because of it, Lord. There's no power in my words or in my thoughts, but simply power in the word and how the Spirit applies that word. And so, Father, Lord, we ask now that you would be among us, dwell amongst your people this morning. May we get a sense of what it's like to be Jesus in trying times. Father, I pray that you would uh, grant us all second chances this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought of why we believe as people so heavily in second chances. Have you ever thought about this? Like, uh, it's kind of in our nature almost to give second chances. Or at least, if we're not going to be the ones giving a second chance, we at least expect to be giving second or third or fourth chances. Have you ever thought, why is that the case? Why do we think that people are deserving or willing or uh, might end up changing their ways in whatever the case may be, so much so that they themselves should require a second chance? This is part and parcel of what it means to be an American, is it not? I mean, if you think about it, and if you read your history books correctly, we were the bad guys. <laughs> we were the ones who revolted, we were the ones who rebelled, and yet, here we are. None of us consider ourselves bad guys. As a matter of fact, if you've watched The Patriot of Mel Gibson, we're the good guys in that story. We're the good guys. We believe we, be we deserve second chances, and that those around us uh, we we should deserve second chances as long as they didn't offend us. And part of me thinks that it's, it's human nature to desire second chances. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where, where God had promised that in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, of which I commanded you not to, you shall surely die. And then what happens? Are they not given a second chance? Are they not given a promise of a coming Savior in Genesis 3.15? And so I think it's, it's in our nature to desire second chances. And we see in Peter's account here in Mark's gospel a second chance. We see a second chance. I, I've titled this sermon, In Our Place. We're going to see that not only was Jesus standing in our place in this text this morning, but, but Peter himself was standing in our place. If you've been walking with us through the Gospel of Mark, you know that uh, there's this thing that he does this, in his style of writing where he kind of builds a sandwich. Now, I know I'm not going to be here long. We'll get out of here and get lunch. But let me tell you, Mark does this thing where he begins to tell a story, and then he interrupts it with another story before finally coming back to finish the story. And so you can see it's a, it's a sandwich with two pieces of bread and uh, your choice of meat in the middle. And we have to ask ourselves, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll miss that he's doing this all along the way. Let me give you some examples. We've uh, preached through these already over the last couple of years, but here's some. Mark tells the story of the woman of the issue of blood. But that story interrupts another story that he's already telling, which is Jesus resurrecting uh, the Jairus' daughter. No other gospel writer tells those stories in the way that Mark does. And the reason Mark does these stories this way is because the, the middle story actually sheds light and interprets for us the other story. You see, the story of John the Baptist's death interrupts the story of Jesus sending out the, the 12 apostles. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple interrupts the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. 
The story of Jesus being anointed here at the beginning of chapter 14 interrupts the story of the plot to kill Jesus. And what we have in our text today, it's a long text, um, that's why I had it read at the beginning here, uh, is we have another story which interrupts another story. Let me give you where we're going this morning. You can write these down and we'll work our way through them. Three points and I'll be out your way. Uh, Number one, we see Jesus before the high priest, innocent yet condemned. Jesus before the high priest, innocent yet condemned. We see Peter before the servant girl, prideful yet ashamed. Prideful yet ashamed. Point number three, uh, we see Barabbas before Pilate, guilty yet acquitted. Guilty, yet acquitted. So let's walk through these in turns. Look with me at verse uh, 53. We're going to see Jesus innocent, yet condemned. Verse 53, if you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say, pass any more time. Mark 14, 53 says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. What we see here is the Sanhedrin's examination of Jesus begins with Mark telling his readers they have nothing on which to condemn him. They have no evidence. There's nothing they can point to. There's nothing they can grab in Jesus' life saying, see, he's a bad person. He stands condemned. And if you've been paying along in Mark's gospel, you know this all along. You see, the author, Mark, has been dropping hints along for you all along the way that Jesus is the one who does the will of God as opposed to everyone else. Jesus is the one who always does good and not evil. Jesus is the one who saves life rather than ending it. And here they bring Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and they have nothing on which to pin him. But look at verse 57. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They say, they heard this man say he will destroy the temple Remember, the temple was the center of faith. It's the the place where the sacrifices were made. It's the place where the high priest had the power. This is the center of the Jewish faith. And so they say, we heard him say, he's going to tear it all down. But it's interesting here that Mark adds, even about this, the stories didn't quite add up. This becomes important. Because they wished to put Jesus to death. And according to Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, at any point, if, if someone was brought before the hand Sanhedrin to be put to death, they needed not just one person's account, but two or three. This is important that Mark puts this here. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says this, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so they're bringing, uh, the people are bringing this charge against Jesus. And they're lying about Jesus' words. But they're speaking true statements. You see, they're, they're lying about Jesus' words, but they're speaking true statements. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? Do you remember when he left the temple? What did he say? Mark 13, verse 2. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings all around? Do you see 
how beautiful this place is. This is what he says. There will not be left one here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You see, the people who wish to condemn Jesus to die on the charge that he would destroy the temple overheard or or misheard or misinterpreted, and yet they still said true statements. They said, he will tear down the, the temple. And Jesus did exactly that. At his death, God ripped, uh, will rip apart the curtain that covers the entrance to the temple. This shows that what Jesus was saying, that this temple made by human hands would no longer be the center of their faith in God. You see, the, 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 the accusers who couldn't get their stories to line up still had some semblance of truth in what they were saying. Of course, the Romans will actually destroy the temple in A.D. 70. But even before then, Jesus with his death and resurrection, begins to create a new temple, not made with hands. That temple that Jesus speaks of, of course, we know is the church, the Christian community, where the presence of Christ is manifested, forgiveness is practiced, and God's power is available to answer prayers. So they said true things, and yet they were lying. But notice, since their testimony doesn't agree, look what happens next, verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst, obviously tired of not hearing a a single coherent story, obviously wanting to get to the heart of this, obviously wanting to condemn Jesus to death. Stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made No answer. Since their testimony doesn't agree, the the high priest decides to stand up and ask Jesus, he says, is what they're saying true? Have you no answer to make? Jesus, how will you answer these charges? The high priest puts the question to Jesus as to whether or not he made this threat against the temple. And Jesus stands silent. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here stands an innocent man who is silent. Though he is silent to this question, we'll notice in just a moment that he answers the next. Before we get to the question and answer, though, we should ask ourselves, why does Jesus not answer this question, but does in fact answer the next? Why does Jesus not answer the question about the temple, but he does answer the question about his identity? Of course, the answer is because the issue of the temple, this new created Christian community, this this new instance of the church, is not the primary issue in Mark's gospel. It's not the main thing that's driving the story forward. Well, Well, then what is the primary issue, Pastor? What is the thing that is driving the story forward? At the middle of Mark's gospel is the question, who is Jesus? The identity of Jesus is the question that has driven the story forward since the beginning. Look at verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? You see, the high priest has finally asked the right question. It's the question each of us in this room should be asking. It's the question for which Jesus is prepared to lay down his life in order to save it. Notice the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Who remembers how Mark begins? What's the first verse of 
the Gospel of Mark. Go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to see this. See that I'm not making this up, that this is where the story has been heading to all along. The high priest asked, are you the Christ? Another word for that is the Messiah. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Blessed, of course, being uh, a way around actually saying God. They're just saying, uh, they're using this word as a placeholder for it because they thought it was too holy for them to use. So he says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And how does Mark begin his gospel? Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Here's the question. It's whether or not Jesus will identify himself as the Messiah and as the Son of God. The question you should be asking yourself this morning is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? Notice his answer. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus says here, I I am. Obviously echoing back God's word to Moses out of the burning bush. uh, Whom shall I say that you are? Whom shall I say has sent me? And God said to him, tell them I am has sent you. Jesus says he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the chosen one. He is the son of God. He again calls himself the son of man here and combines Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 with Psalm chapter uh, 110 verse 1 which shows that he has been given the power and authority. You see, this is where the story has been driving to all along. This is the golden thread that runs throughout Mark's gospel. Who are you, Jesus? He is both the Messiah, the chosen one, the promised one, the one promised to Adam and Eve in the garden, the one promised uh, to Abraham that his seed would bless all the nations, the one promised to David, a king who would sit on the throne without end. And he is the son of God. Notice the high priest's reaction in verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What father witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. You see, in response to Jesus' answer, They said, this man is condemned. He's condemned, innocent, yet condemned. They began to spit on him, mocking him, telling him to prophesy who it was to to who is hitting him. Jesus is innocent, yet condemned. But next, Mark moves the story down into the courtyard where we see Peter as prideful, yet ashamed. Prideful, yet ashamed. It's important to see here for a moment that this isn't sequential. Rather, Mark wants you to know that while Jesus is standing trial, there's another trial simultaneously going on in the courtyard all along. And that's the trial of Peter. Look back at verse 53. Notice you have two people arriving on the scene. You have Jesus arriving in verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And then in verse 54, you have Peter arriving on the scene. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He is sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. You see, we can only receive the story in what appears to be a linear fashion, right? And so to try to get you to see that this is happening simultaneously, that, that Peter's trial is happening at the same time of Christ's trial, Mark tries to put in some literary things to say, no, 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 this is happening 
at the same time. That's why Mark puts verse 54, by the way, after verse 53 and not after verse 65. So you might understand the irony of verse 65. You see, while Jesus is being mocked about prophesying, at that very time, that very moment, his most recent prophecy about Peter denying him is actually coming to fruition. So let's read verse 54 and then straight to verse 66. This is how Peter, this is how Mark wants you to read the story. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the great way and the rooster crowed. Notice the similarities between these trials. Jesus' life is at risk, and so is Peter's. Peter's life is at risk. Jesus is confronted on who he is. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And so is Peter. Were you with the Nazarene? Notice the similarities between these trials, but also notice the stark differences. Jesus is questioned by the high priest. Peter is questioned by a female servant. When Jesus is being questioned by the most powerful man in the religious hierarchy, he is unflinching. But when Peter is confronted not by a religious leader, nor even a soldier guard, but a virtually powerless female servant, he is gripped by terror. There Peter is, sitting by the fire, warming himself on a March or April cool evening night. And a woman looks at him. Perhaps how long does she look at him? 30, 60 seconds? You know, it's one of those people that you just kind of look over and they're still looking at you. And you look back and they're still looking at you. You don't know if you should look a third time to see if they're still looking at you. I imagine it's like that for Peter. Finally, he makes eye contact with her, perhaps for a third or fourth time. And she says, you were with Jesus. Here's Peter, the first one who called to be with Jesus. Mark chapter 3. Instead of denying himself... To take up his cross and follow Jesus, he tries to save his life by concealing who he is. In this moment, Peter is falling into the category of those who are ashamed of Jesus. Recall Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Spirit. Angels, And so Peter, in this moment, is ashamed. I don't know him. I don't understand what you're saying. And notice he begins to change his position. He, he, he flees to the gateway, trying to move away from the source of heat, but also the source of heat of adversity. He moves into the gateway. But notice the persistence of this woman in verse 69. The servant girl saw him again and began again to say to the bystanders, This man... Is one of them. But again, he denied it. It doesn't say how he denied it, just simply that he denied it. We don't get his actual response here. That's not the point. The point is he's now denied him three times, two times. Now, after a little while, notice the bystanders now are the ones saying to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. At this point, Peter can take it no longer. 
He begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear something along the lines like, God strike me dead if I'm lying. Listen, I don't know him. Peter says he doesn't know this man. Of course, Peter's lying, afraid, ashamed. But he's also speaking a terrible truth. You see, like the accusers who lied about Jesus also spoke truth here, uh, Peter is lying and yet speaking a terrible truth. He doesn't know what it means to be with Jesus. He doesn't understand what it means to be with Jesus. He doesn't know in any real sense, the man he himself identified as the Messiah in chapter 8. He has never known. He has never understood. His, he has eyes, but he does not see. He has ears, but he does not hear. And he says in verse 72, immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus has said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And it broke down and wept. See, the crowing of the rooster reminds Peter of Jesus' prophecy. But at this point, it's too late. All he can do is weep. Let's not miss this, church. This is the last time we see Peter in Mark's gospel. This is the last glimpse of the man we've seen from Mark chapter 3 to Mark chapter 14. And the last thing we see of Peter in Mark's gospel is him weeping from being ashamed. In fact, I don't know the man are the last words we hear from any disciple in this book. Mark, of course, has a reason for this. He's showing that Jesus' words about all will fall away have come true. He's showing that Jesus alone will face the cross. You see, when we read of Peter's failing here, we should read that Peter is us in this story. Peter stands in our place as the weak disciple who thinks he can save himself, as the disciple who does not yet understand that to be last is to be first, and to be first is to be last. You see, Mark wants you to see that Peter is standing in your place and represents every time you've been ashamed of Christ. Brother, sister, Christian. That's why he puts the story in here. Between these two stories of trials of Jesus, you have the story of prideful Peter interrupting him. Prideful, yet ashamed. Finally, our passage ends this morning with Barabbas before Pilate, who is guilty yet acquitted. Look at verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? We see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no farther answer so that Pilate was amazed. This is the first time we see in Mark's gospel the phrase king of the Jews or, or king of Israel. And Jesus' response is, you have said so, or perhaps your translations say, so you say his response is ambiguous here on purpose. Jesus is indeed a royal figure in the story. He's the divinity king. He's the son of David who was designated son of God. 
But what is interesting in Mark's gospel is that any time one of the human characters in the story use a royal title for Christ, for Jesus, they also betray a failure to understand the meaning of that title. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response is emphasizing the fact that you've said it. Literally what it means here is it says, you are saying it. This is a king who reigns, but not from a throne, but from the gallows. This is a king who is enthroned and acclaimed, not by his followers and his disciples because they have all fell away, but by his executioners. This is the last time in Mark's gospel we see Jesus speaking to any other humans. And when Pilate demands an answer to the charges against him, again, he falls silent. Look at verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You see, at Passover, Pilate was in the habit of releasing a prisoner, a condemned man, to gain the support and goodwill of the people. He was a man who knew how to work a crowd. And so he had unlimited rights to grant amnesty to whom he wanted. He apparently let the crowd make the call. And at this time, at this particular time, incarcerated was a notorious rebel, this this freedom fighter and murderer named Barabbas. The name here is important. His Barabbas means son of the father. He, he was awaiting his execution. He might be a national hero to the common people, but in the eyes of the government, he was a revolutionary that Rome and Pilate would gladly put to death. The people began to petition Pilate for his annual Passover amnesty gift. Pilate saw that as a way out of a tough situation. He'd already told the Jewish leaders concerning Jesus, I have no reason to condemn him. Further, His wife had warned him in a dream from Matthew chapter 27, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. He also knew the chief priest had only arrested Jesus out of envy. And so Pilate asked the crowd, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? If the people went with this option, he could release an innocent man and stick. Stick it to the Sanhedrin as well. However, things didn't go as he hoped. You see, we know God's plan is proceeding exactly as he intended. It's easy to suspect that the religious leaders thought Pilate would pull such a stunt. They were ready in the crowd. They began to stir up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas instead. Pilate asked what he should do with Jesus then. If you want me to release Barabbas, then, then what do you want me to do with this man, Jesus? And again, they shouted their wishes, crucify him. Pilate makes one last request. Why? What has he done wrong? And the crowd at this point was so stirred up, they just kept yelling, crucify him. At this point, Pilate has enough, washes his hands, 
while the crowd accepts responsibility for executing the king. You see, Jesus was innocent, but declared to be guilty. Barabbas was guilty, but was treated as though he was innocent. You see, Jesus died in his place. But he also died in your place. You see, in this amazing reversal, this is how we become sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Notice this man's name was Barabbas, son of the Father. He gives us nothing else. Where is this man from? We don't know. But his name means son of the Father. How does he become a son of the Father? Simply by Jesus taking his place. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Without knowing it, the religious leaders and Pilate and Barabbas were all part of a tapestry of grace which God was weaving for sinners. Their actions spoke louder than their words. Louder than the cries of the crowds for Jesus' blood, Jesus was not dying for his own crimes, but for the crimes of others. Not for his own sins, but the sins of others. He did not die for himself. He died for us. Why do we believe in second chances? I think the answer is because if there was no second chance, then none of us stand a chance. So Galatians tells us Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Jesus suffered the injustice and insult that I should have suffered. Jesus experienced the shame and pain that I should have experienced. Jesus bore the guilt and curse that I should have borne. The shepherd was struck that the sheep might be saved. The great king was tortured and killed that his people might live. We truly stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He bore my sin and my sorrow and made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Jesus is the great king. He is the sacrifice for sinners. He is the answer for you. He's the reason we get second chances and third chances and and so many more. I wonder, do you know this, Jesus? Have you ever answered the question? Have you ever asked the question that the high priest asked, are you the Messiah, the Son of the blessed? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Hear Jesus answer you this morning. He is. He is. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, Father. We would be lost without you. Father, in this moment, as Jesus spoke, he sealed his fate and thereby sealed the fate for all of us. Well, there is no other way. Well, we stood condemned and unclean and Jesus took our condemnation and our uncleanliness. Father, I pray that we would believe this. We would trust this. The one the crowds shouted Hosanna to are the same ones who shouted crucify him. Father, I pray that we would continually always sing Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Father, I pray that we would believe this. I pray pray that those in the room who have not believed this before, that you would do a work in their heart, that you would open to them, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love, and minds to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.